Welcome to Reading Marx's Grinrisse with David Harvey. This course was recorded at the People's Forum in New York City in 2020. David Harvey is a distinguished professor at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. The page numbers Professor Harvey refers to are valid for the Penguin Classics edition. Course materials are available at peoplesforum.org slash This episode is Class 7, pages 516 through 594. Okay, well, uh, these are strange times, and uh, I guess I'm looking forward to seeing how this all works. Uh, I'm doing this from my uh, apartment. Um, You know, one of my favorite novels is uh, Marquez's uh, Love in the Time of Cholera, so this is the... The Grundrisse in the time of uh, COVID-19, which seems a little bit bizarre, but on the other hand, you know, there's the long run and the short run, and the long run, I think the Grundrisse will uh, prevail. Uh, The last time we, in a sense, uh, finished up one phase of uh, the Grundrisse, which is summarized by the final kind of comment on page 514, which is where we ended up last time, which is uh, saying that we have seen uh, the true nature of capital. Uh, And uh, much of what uh, Marx has been trying to do, I think, uh, up until this point, has been to define uh, what capital is and how we should uh, understand the concept. And, of course, Marx's understanding is uh, dialectical and it uh, is a very strong uh, argument uh, to differentiate uh, the way in which Marx understands capital from the way in which uh, conventional economists would understand capital or even in daily life we would uh, understand uh, capital. And I think uh, the, the central issue here is this idea that, that capital does not exist outside of labor. And what's more, it does not exist outside of alienated labor. And it is alienated labor and alienated capital which, in a sense, define each other and each tries to complete itself uh, within the other and they are locked in this kind of uh, battle, which in a sense can be understood as class struggle, which would be two forces which are outside of each other and colliding. Uh, But that's not how Marx sees it. Marx sees it as actually two forces inside of capital which are struggling with each other. Uh, And uh, I was trying to think of... uh, literary ways to think about this comparison. And the best one I can come up with is uh, Conan Doyle's uh, uh, story of the relationship between uh, Sherlock Holmes and uh, the Napoleon of crime, as he was called, Moriarty. And uh, Conan Doyle, I think, uh, was tired of having to write stories about uh, Sherlock Holmes and wanted to somehow or other get rid of him, kill him off, if you like. Uh, It's like, uh, you know, one of these episodes, if you kill off the main character, then the episode is, in effect, uh, over. 
And he did this in a short story which had him cast against this figure, Moriarty. And it ends with a sort of pursuit uh, across uh, Europe of uh, Sherlock Holmes uh, finally uh, catching up with Moriarty, and both of them are on the edge of this gorge, uh, Rauschenberg or whatever it was, gorge in Bavaria, and they struggle with each other, and the end of the story has both of them locked in a, a mortal embrace going off the cliff edge uh, into the gorge in beneath. And in a, in a sense, I think what Marx is trying to do is to say to us that we should uh, think about uh, capital and labor as defining each other, locked in a mortal embrace, and the end of one would be the end of the other. And therefore, uh, whatever we're doing, uh, we just cannot get rid of capital without getting rid of alienated labor, and we cannot get rid of alienated labor without getting rid of alienated capital. And so that is, if you like, a certain consciousness that arises. And Marx, as you will recall, started to talk about recognition and consciousness on the part of the reader that this is what uh, we, were, we were dealing with. So that, if you like, is the, what the true nature of capital is, is being depicted uh, in, in the Grundrisse. And we're now moving, however, into a, a kind of a series of questions as to uh, how uh, the nature of capital actually works. And so this week we're going to deal with that in a very, very specific uh, way, which is in some ways, I think, uh, uh, rather exciting because Marx wants to talk about the circulation of capital and the way in which uh, capital moves around and how it moves. And I'll come back and I'll, I'll wave my familiar kind of uh, diagram uh, at you, which is, which is about uh, the way in which uh, capital circulates, starting with the money at the bottom, uh, moving up uh, through uh, the moment of production, then going through realization and monetization, and then going through distribution and then coming back in again. So this is the circulation process of capital. And Marx in this section wants to look at that whole circulation process and to do it in a way uh, where we will understand some of the impacts this circulation has on what is going on around us in terms of daily life. Uh, Marx starts off by kind of saying that he had earlier discussed, uh, you know, way back in the beginning of the Grundrisse, uh, the question of money and the circulation of money. Uh, money circulates in relationship to uh, commodity exchange. It's the inverse movement to commodity exchange. Uh, the money does not uh, disappear. It remains uh, within the system and continues to circulate on a permanent uh, kind of basis. And that raises all kinds of questions that we looked at at the very beginning of the Grundrisse, which, okay, how much of this money do you need to circulate an expanding mass of commodities, things of that sort. And Marx uh, uh, deals with that. But now we're looking at the circulation of capital. And the circulation of capital, of course, grabs onto uh, the money circulation at a certain point, and it becomes a form of money circulation. You start uh, in that diagram I showed you with money, uh, which then becomes money capital, money capital, then comes back in again once you monetize 
the commodities after production, uh, and then uh, that flows back again. So we're now talking about the circulation of money capital, and Marx starts to kind of say, well, you know, whereas um, money circulation goes all over the place, uh, money uh, capital circulates in a way which is structured along the lines that uh, pointed out here. And as it structures, so it starts to sort of infiltrate the world of monetary circulation and starts to discipline the monetary circulation to the point where uh, the circulation of money in society is, is dominated by the circulation, the monetary form of capital circulation. So that, again, this is one of these things where Marx is kind of saying, all right, money existed before capital, money enters in and starts to gnaw away at the edges of capital, and bit by bit, uh, capital starts to sort of uh, dominate uh, the monetary circulation. So he starts off uh, with this by saying that the circulation of capital, he says on 516, constantly ignites itself anew, that is, it bring, comes around in the circulation, divides into its different moments, and is a perpetuum mobile, that is, its continuous process of uh, movement. Uh, and he, then he kind of points out, as he's done before, that in its circulation, capital expands itself and its path. This is the uh, argument about the endless accumulation of capital and the endless expansion of capital. And then he introduces something which is in, has been hinted at before, but which isn't specifically being considered, which is the speed or slowness of its circulation. Uh, and that, he says, forms one of its intrinsic moments. Uh, it becomes qualitatively altered in circulation. And the totality of the moments of its circulation are themselves the moments of its production, its reproduction as well as its new production. Now, there are two things being produced here. Uh, one is you're, you're, you're producing capital and reproducing capital, uh, but you're also producing uh, the, the effect uh, of, of, of speed and, and, and of movement because, after all, uh, capital is defined as a process, is defined as a process of money in, in, in motion uh, and value in motion. Uh, so this is what is posited, he says, on 517, uh, uh, by alien capital and hence again by capital. Uh, so that uh, the, the, the circulation of, uh, of, of value, of money capital, uh, starts to grab hold of not only the one capital, but the circulation of many capitals. And so what we're now looking at, going to start to look at is the circulation of monetary forms and money capital uh, in relationship to uh, many, many uh, different forms of capital, different industries, some of which are supplying means of production to other industries and, and, and the like. So we're going to look uh, at uh, the circulation of capital uh, in general. Uh, and, and as he says on bottom 517, the circulation of money itself, which is the initial starting point, now appears as determined by the circulation of capital. And it is the circulation of capital uh, which he's going to be looking at. Um, Within this circulation process, there is, as he says, uh, the bottom 517, he introduces this idea that he's going to look very much at production, uh, which you know, we've been analyzing right up until this point, 
but we're now also going to look at how production integrates with circulation in general. We're not just talking, talking here now about a particular form of circulation. We're talking about well, the circulation of this whole process through uh, production, realization, distribution, and, the com- and, and then the coming back into the circle. Uh, and then he introduces the kind of question, how long capital remains within the sphere of the production process depends on the latter's technological conditions. And the time it spends in this phase directly coincides, even though the duration is necessarily different, depending upon the type of production, with the development of the productive forces. Uh, That is, technological change is going to affect the speed with which the production process works, and that speed is therefore uh, going to be dependent upon uh, upon, upon the technology. And he takes this up again on page 518, where he says the speed with which it can repeat the production process anew is at the same time determined by the development of the productive forces in all other branches of industry. This becomes quite clear if one supposes the same capital to produce its own raw materials, instruments, and final products. The length of time during which capital remains in the phase of the production process becomes itself a moment of circulation. And what Marx is doing here is saying, okay, now let's reintegrate production into this whole kind of circular process of, uh, of, uh, of movement. And so we're going to look at the circulation process of capital as a whole, and production is just one moment within that process. And that one moment takes up a certain amount of time. And the question then is, how much time does it take up? How quickly can you go through it so that you can get come back into circulation? That is, we not only have to look at uh, the, 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 the technology, but also if, if all of the other moments in the circulation process run uh, frictionless, uh, then how many times can you conduct this uh, form of uh, production again and again and again? Uh, and, and that depends on the technology, but it also depends upon the availability of all the raw materials. It depends on the availability of the fixed capital, the availability of the raw materials. So that the, uh, the, the second part of this circulation process is not only how long do you spend in the production process itself, but how much time do you take uh, to complete the transformation of capital uh, into its different forms of commodity, money, and, and, and the like. And this leads him to take up on 519 uh, what he calls the velocity of turnover. Now, Marx uses turnover time, and it is introduced here, but not really worked out very well, but this is a very important argument in Volume 2 of Capital. That is, uh, the turnover time of capital is how long it takes you to start from the money capital to get back to the money capital. And that turnover time can accelerate, uh, and then it also depends on how fast you can go through at the moment of uh, uh, sale of the commodity, the distribution, and all all the rest of it. Uh, And the velocity of turnover uh, has some very important implications. Uh, One of the problems is that, of course, different capitals have different turnover times. Uh, when you're working in, in agriculture, and he introduces this on the bottom of 519, when you, introduce, when you look at agriculture, 
uh, you're on an annual turnover basis for, for the most part, unless you're in that part of the world where you can do double cropping. But for, for most uh, of the agriculture, you, you get it once a year. So that's your turnover time. Uh, but if you're uh, making uh, ice cream or you're making something else, what's the turnover time? The turnover time can be much shorter. Uh, other uh, kinds of uh, commodities, the turnover time would be much longer. Uh, if, uh, for example, you're, you're growing pears or uh, something like that, the pear tree takes a long time to mature. So the turnover time in, in, in pear production and agriculture is different from the turnover time in wheat production. So you start to have to confront the fact that there are these multiple turnover times of, of different spheres of production. And the big problem then arises is how do you coordinate all of these different turnover times? And, uh, for instance, uh, the turnover time in the production of uh, uh, cotton cloth is continuous. On the other hand, the input of the cotton, if there's only one harvest once a year, comes once a year. So you've got these two different turnover times. How does capital negotiate uh, these different uh, turnover times? And this then leads him uh, to look uh, at one of the, the problems that arises uh, because there are moments in this process where uh, maybe nothing is happening. For example, you put the seed in, in, in the soil and nothing happens for quite a while. There's no labor being added to it uh, at all. And you just wait for it to grow and then it grows and grows and grows. And then maybe some labor comes along with, you know, weed it or, or, or put pesticides or whatever it is the, the farmers want to do for a little bit. And so a bit more labor will be put in. But the main labor then comes from seeding and then harvesting. In between, there's a lot of dead time. So Marx introduces the, the, the idea that in any production process, there are likely to be moments when nothing is happening. And if nothing is happening, that means that you're, you're, you're actually losing value. Uh, so he suggests that we have to introduce into this whole process the idea of devaluation, that capital, which is just sitting, waiting, for the, the seed to sprout uh, and to grow uh, is, is not, it's not really doing anything. Uh, it is uh, it technically devalued. So he starts to talk about uh, the fact that in this whole kind of process of movement of valuation through the system, there are these times and phases of nothing happening, and they are times and phases, he said, which should be thought of, uh, of uh, as, as devaluation. Um, so the duration then of the production process of capital uh, is, is one thing, but then there's also the duration of the circulation process. How long does it take you to get from having produced the corn to getting the money back for, for the corn? And then you've got to take the corn to market. Uh, that takes a little time. Uh, it may stay on the market for some time. If the corn is going to have to be ground into cornmeal, it's going to take even more time. Uh, and so the whole kind of question then arises as to the different temporalities uh, which are involved in the circulation process and how uh, general the circulation process is. And uh, so he says, okay, I'm going to look at the circulation process with production as one moment that takes a certain amount of time. I then have to look at marketing, which is going to take some um, more time. And I'm going to look at the utilization of what is being marketed, 
maybe in other forms that's going to take even more time. So I want to look at all these, all these temporalities and how they uh, fit together. But his main concentration in this chapter is uh, on uh, uh, the realization uh, of uh, uh, the, the, uh, product, the value produced in the market. Uh, how much time does it take uh, to realize the value? Uh, and uh, this is then going to be about the, the, how much time is going to be taken up with the act of marketing. I mean, it would be very nice if uh, the moment you produced the corn, it was instantaneously marketed. That doesn't happen. Uh, there is a temporality involved in this, and this is what he's going to look at. Uh, and this turns out to, to be a bit problematic. Uh, he kind of says, well, uh, one of the things we have to recognize is that actually when you're marketing the product, you have to get the mod product to market, and it may take you some time uh, to get the product to market. And that how much time it takes you to get the product to market is a function of, quote, the greater distance of the market in space, and hence the delayed return. The longer re time required by capital to realize itself will be due here to the greater spatial distance it has to travel after the production process in order to exchange. Uh, cannot, he says, the product produced for China be regarded in such a way that the product is completed, its production process completed, only when it has reached the Chinese market? Its realization costs would rise by the cost of transport from England to China. The cost of production, then he then said, would resolve into the labor time objectified in the direct production process, plus the labor time contained in transport. Uh, so we've now, we've now got to come up with the question, does transport add value? Does, can, will there be value added through, through, through the transport? And Marge's answer to that is, well, yes. Uh, his answer is that actually the product is not finished until it is actually at the marketplace. So the fact that you make it in play at place A uh, is not necessarily the end of the product. It is not completed until it's got from point A where it's made to point B where it is going to, going to be sold. So the cost of transportation adds to the value of the, of the commodity. Uh, now, this is, can lead to some confusions. Because Marx's general argument is going to be that value cannot be created from circulation per se. That is, from the, 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 you know, the, the activities of, the, of uh, the merchant capitalists do not create value. Uh, the activities of uh, uh, the retailers do not create value. Uh, so, but this, he says, is different from the transportation. So that a certain amount of value will be created during the process of circulation, provided it's about producing something, which is quite simply logged in as change of location. You produce a material change of location, that adds value. On the other hand, uh, providing uh, sort of value to the merchant for uh, their acting as intermediary does not create value. Uh, the value that they command is a deduction uh, out of the value which was created in production. So, but transport and communications and movement over space is going to be very different. Now, of course, 
as a geographer, I like all of this because it's about the spatialization uh, of the circulation process and the fact that value is created out of uh, creating change of, uh, change of location. Uh, and which then leads, of course, to saying, well, okay, if labor is involved in, in producing the change of location, uh, can surplus value be extracted from the transport costs? And again, Marx's argument is, well, yes, uh, to the degree that the transport uh, is, is uh, uh, set up as a, you know, as, a, as a material kind of process and, and it employs labor, uh, laborers will be played the, the, the value of their labor power and they may produce more change of location and the value of the change of location may be greater than that labor power and therefore surplus value can be extracted uh, from the transport and communications uh, industries. So this is where, where we, we start on this analysis. Uh, and, uh, but this also applies not only uh, to the flow of commodities going from what I have produced to how it's got to market, it also applies uh, to my inputs. That is, if when, when I'm buying raw materials, uh, as he says on uh, 523, whether I extract metals from mines or take commodities to the side of their consumption, both movements are equally spatial. The improvement of the means of transport and communication likewise falls into the category of the development of the productive forces generally. Okay, here's another interesting thing. Productive forces, that is technological changes, are going to be very important in the transport and communication sector. And here he's kind of saying that to the degree that uh, transportation and change of location is productive of value, no matter whether it's uh, the inputs or the outputs, uh, how much it is going to be productive of value depends upon uh, the productive forces which are deployed in the transport and communication sector. Now, this is not a minor problem. This is actually foundational for the history of capital. How many innovations are really about uh, revolutionizing the productive forces which are actually in, you know, able uh, to create a change of location? Well, uh, innovation in the transport and communication sector has been crucially important in the whole history of capitalism, and here Marx is kind of explaining why that is the case. Uh, so uh, this is the argument then, uh, which is, is to say uh, that an additional moment enters in, as he says on 524, to the value production, which is the costs of circulation, which are not contained in the simple concept of circulation, and these costs uh, are, are, as was the case with the means of transport and communication, uh, and, and in, in, in this next moment, we're going to look at uh, the, the, the circulation costs, which exist in general. And these are different from uh, transport and communications because they do not add value but they are what he calls the necessary costs of uh, circulation. And these necessary costs of circulation are going to be deductions out of the value which has already been produced by what happens in production and what happens in transportation. So, but the, again, the means of communication and, and transport are very different. 
and uh, and, and 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 Marx is is is, is saying these, this is a very important aspect of, of what uh, is going on in in a capitalist uh, economy. So 524 towards the bottom, he says, the more production comes to a rest on exchange value, hence on exchange, the more important are the physical conditions of exchange, the means of communication and transport become for the cost of circulation. Capital by its nature drives beyond every spatial barrier. Thus the creation and the physical conditions of exchange of the means of communication and transport the annihilation of space by time becomes an extraordinary necessity for it. Only insofar as the direct product can be realized in distant markets in mass quantities in proportions to reductions in the transportation costs, and only insofar as at the same time the means of communication and transport themselves can yield spheres of realization for labor driven by capital, only insofar as commercial traffic takes place in massive volumes in which more than necessary labor is replaced, only to that extent is the production of cheap means of communication and transport a condition for production based on capital and promoted by it for that reason. There's an interesting phrase here, which uh, I've often worked with a lot in my own work, which is the annihilation of space uh, by time. Um, I've always found it a bit odd you know, that this phrase, the annihilation of space by time. It suggests that time actually itself annihilates space. And it always seemed a bit odd. And so I, I asked a couple of times, is this a correct translation? And it turns out that that is not exactly a correct translation. That the, the, the proper translation would be the annihilation of space through time. Uh, and we'll see another rendition of the translation uh, uh, later on. So it's not annihilation of space by time. It is the annihilation of space through time. And it's going to be through time uh, because time is the measure of value. And the big question is not space itself, but how fast you can move over to space. How much time does it get you, does it take you to get from A to B? And so the number of miles doesn't matter. It's how much, how many how many minutes or hours it takes you to traverse those miles that matters. So when we say the, the annihilation of space through time, we kind of say really the measure of space is how long it takes you to traverse that space. And that how long to, to transverse it is what it is that many revolutions in technologies are really all about. And so that is where we're, we're, we're headed here. Uh, not annihilation of space by time, but uh, the, the, the measure of space and space relation being how much time does it take you or how much does it cost you uh, to traverse the space. So that, that, that is, uh, that, that, that's what we're going to be looking at here. And now in order to do this, then, well, we have to start to look at uh, how it is that uh, production based on capital uh, is so uh, attached to the idea of this uh, annihilation of space through time, the reduction of the time it takes you to move from A to B. And, of course, well, it doesn't take you know, too much to, to recognize that a lot of the innovations in the history of capital are about uh, reducing space uh, to less and less 
uh, time of movement. Uh, but this uh, is, he says, uh, all labor required in order to throw the finished product into circulation. Uh, it is in economic circulation only when it is present on the market. It is from capital's viewpoint a barrier to be overcome. That is, uh, spatial friction is a barrier, uh, the barrier of overcoming space, and that therefore we have to find what capital has to find ways to overcome. Uh, this barrier. Uh, and then he immediately kind of comes up with the question of, well, highways, uh, original, originally fought the community, later for a long period to the governments, as pure deductions from production, deducted from the common surplus product of the country. Uh, but it is held, they do not constitute a source of wealth in themselves, uh, even though they are uh, important for uh, uh, the possibility of uh, reducing uh, the barriers of spatial distance. And so we then get into an extended discussion on road construction. Who builds the road? Why is the road built? Uh, what is the purpose of the road? And what is happening with the road? Uh, and uh, that all takes place on 525. Uh, and then there's kind of interesting question as to whether the, ca the capitalist or the state builds the road, and does the capitalist make a gain here then? And we have a discussion about, uh, you know, can you buy and sell the road? Uh, and then he says, first, strip off what is puzzling about the road, which arise, arises from its nature as fixed capital. Imagine that the road could be sold at once, like a coat or a ton of iron, he says, in which case uh, we would start to get uh, the, a, a lengthy discussion uh, which follows uh, over the question of, of, of road building. But I would suggest that you read this not simply about road building. What Marx is posing here is the whole kind of question of the production of physical infrastructures. Who is going to be responsible? What is their role? Uh, do they actually produce value or do they create conditions in which value can be uh, created uh, by, say, trucks going over highways of uses of the physical infrastructures. And so Marx then kind of gets into the question, well, okay, who builds the road? Uh, if it's a communal project, then it's built in a certain way. If it's built in another way uh, by the state, uh, and uh, are there possibilities for it to be built by uh, capital? And, uh, and then the question arises as, who needs the road and, 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 and by what means is the need of a road communicated in such a way that the road actually gets built and how the infrastructures actually get built. Now, I'm not going to argue that these passages here solve all of these kinds of questions, uh, but for me at least in terms of, you know, the production of physical infrastructures, the built, production of the built environment, uh, the production of, uh, of urbanization, all those kinds of questions, those questions are, 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 are critical in terms of my own work, but here I find a framework in which I can start to plant kind of sort of questions about, well, okay, how does capital accumulation work in relationship to the production of these physical infrastructures? Who is going to produce those infrastructures? Is it going to be the state? Is it going to be the commune? Is it going to be capital? Uh, what, uh, and, and, and where are the needs uh, coming from and how are the needs registered? And I'll come back to that in, in, in a little bit. Um, and he has also, however, 
a, a, a serious point that these physical infrastructures take a very considerable concentration of raw materials and productive capacity. Now, that can take place, of course, through the agency of the state, but it's possible also for them to be taken, taken through uh, uh, the, the concentration uh, uh, concentrations of capital. And, of course, in Marx's time, uh, we see the concentrations of capital coming up in terms of the uh, the, build, the joint stock companies that were building the railroads, which were building the infrastructures and so on. So we start to see some aspects of, of that. Uh, and then this also gets through to the question of uh, you know, what, what kind of labor is involved here and is that labor being worked in a way which is contributing surplus value? And if, if so, how? So he sort of talks on 529 about a special class of road workers may form employed by the state. Uh, now, we know that construction work is a very special kind of work. And here he's kind of saying, well, maybe uh, we have to think about uh, that special kind of work and, and, and the extraction of surplus value from this special kind of work. And then the question arises, is can, is, can capital uh, itself become concentrated enough, large scale enough, that it can undertake these kinds of enterprises on, on its own account? Uh, and then he kind of says, well, you know, if capital uh, uh, becomes large enough, uh, and as he says on 529, now for the capitalist to undertake road building as a business at his expense, various conditions are required, which all amount to this, that the mode of production based on capital is already developed to its highest stage. Firstly, large capital is itself presupposed, a large capital concentrated in his hands in order that he may be able to undertake work of such dimensions and of such slow turnover and hence realization. So as if you actually pay for the road, you can pay for it over, I don't know, 15, 20 years, the realization process is, of the value of the road is, is, is quite problematic. Hence, he says, mostly share capital. The form in which capital has worked itself up to its final uh, form uh, uh, in, in its substance, but is posited also in its form as social power and product. Secondly, it must bring interest. That is, almost certainly, if you're going to go into this, you're going to have to borrow a lot of funds from the shareholders, and they're going to want interest on the money they invest, and so uh, somehow or other interest is going to have to be paid. Uh, but he interestingly says, not necessarily profit. Uh, that is, when, when the return of capital is divided into interest and profit, maybe when you're investing in the infrastructures, you don't need to get the profit, uh, which will be taken up later on. Thirdly, as presuppositions, such a volume of traffic, commercial above all, that the road pays for itself. Now, obviously, what Marx has in mind here is, 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 is a toll road of some, of some kind. Uh, which could pay for itself, uh, uh, but will depend on the volume of the traffic. And the same would be true of railroads and other infrastructures and so on. Uh, fourthly, a portion of idle wealth which can lay out its revenues for these articles of locomotion. So not only do you need to build the road, but you need to build the, the, the trucks that, that, that go along it. You're not only got to build the railroads, you've got to build the, the locomotives which, which, which run on it. Um, 
So these are the, all, if you like, the necessities that, 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 that exist um, before these large-scale projects of this kind can be actually handled by capital. And I think it's kind of interesting that uh, over the last 30 or 40 years, larger and larger products have been financed by, by capital itself. Uh, the argument I would use would be the Channel Tunnel. Um, in, in the 19th century, this would be the kind of thing that would be done and could only be done through the state apparatus. But the Channel Tunnel was set up uh, with obviously state participation, state planning, but the financing was all private. It, was, uh, it came from a consortium of banks and, and, and they, 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 they funded uh, all, all of this. Um, and, and there has to be a clear need for it. And uh, Marx introduces uh, his own example of this on the middle of 5.30. The first railway between Liverpool and Manchester had become a necessity of production for the Liverpool cotton brokers and even more for the Manchester manufacturers. Capital as such, it's being posited with a necessary scope, will produce roads only when the production of roads has become a necessity for the producers, that is, for the direct producers, uh, in this case for the, for the cotton mills of, uh, of, of Manchester and for the merchants uh, in, in, in Liverpool. Uh, and so this, therefore, kind of says this was then created a condition for the capitalist profit-making. That is, the railroad could be profitable because it was already indicated there was a trade there. But then something interesting happens, which Marx uh, notice, notices when he gets at the bottom. He says, all general conditions of production, such as roads, canals, etc., whether they facilitate circulation or even make it possible at all, or whether they increase the force of production, um, that all of these presuppose, in order to be undertaken by capital instead of by the government, uh, the highest development of production founded on capital. The separation of public works from the state and their migration into the domain of works undertaken by capital itself indicate, indicates the degree to which the real community has constituted itself in the form of capital. A country, for example, the United States, may feel the need for railways in connection with production. Nevertheless, the direct advantage arising from them for production may be too small for the investment to appear as anything but sunk capital. Then capital shifts the burden onto the shoulders of the state. Okay, so we've got a very interesting thing here about possibility of public-private partnerships, which, of course, Marx doesn't mention, but which we're going to take this kind of bridging uh, things, and, and who bears uh, the, the, the burden, what the form of capital is, uh, but then Miles comes up with a kind of a, a, a very interesting ob ob observation, which turns out to have a great deal of uh, historical truth uh, to it. He says on the bottom of 531, capital undertakes only advantageous undertakings, advantageous in its sense. True, it also speculates unsoundly, and as we shall see, must do so. It then undertakes investments which do not pay, and which pay only as soon as they have become to a certain degree devalued. Hence, the many undertakings where the first investment is sunk and lost, the first entrepreneurs go bankrupt and begin to realize themselves only at second or third hand, where the invested capital has become smaller owing to devaluation. That is, the initial investors go in there, speculate, think they can make a killing out of something, go bankrupt, 
And then whatever they did is left behind, and along comes the second wave of capitalists and says, okay, I pick up these uh, investments for almost nothing. They have, still have a use value, and that use value uh, can then be deployed in such a way that the second wave or the third wave of investors coming in can make a profit. Uh, my example, which I, I think I mentioned before, was the London Underground system, uh, that the initial tunnels were, were set up and, and large amounts of capital were mobilized, actually from the United States, uh, to flow to London to build the underground system in London. The companies went bankrupt uh, because uh, they just couldn't sustain. Uh, all the investors, in uh, actually many of them coming from Baltimore, by the way, from Maryland, uh, in the late 19th, early 20th century, uh, lost their money. And then the, the tunnels are sitting there, and along came uh, another bunch of investors and said, okay, we'll take over the, the, the tunnels and we'll pay, uh, I don't know, 200 pounds for all the, all the network of tunnels, and then we'll load the tracks and we'll get the stuff going, and then it turned out to be profitable. So, but this, this is a long, there's a long history of this, uh, of, of this sort of thing, and we see it going on around us all of the time. But then he says something else which is important towards the bottom. The road itself may so increase the force of production that it creates new traffic, which then makes the road profitable. That is, you can invest in such a way as to meet an existing demand, or you can invest in such a way that you actually create the demand which validates what you have done. So a lot of these investments are of that sort. They look to create the demand. If the demand does not materialize, then what happens is uh, that uh, people go bankrupt, but then the next group comes in. So this is, a, I think, a, a very uh, important digression, as Marx calls it, which is about infrastructure investments, uh, how they're mobilized, whether they're mobilized by the state, how the need is expressed and what the need is about and, and how needs, needs are met and how actually needs are created so that the investment actually creates the need rather than the need creating uh, the investment. Uh, and so he concludes uh, on 533. The result of our digression, and this has been a very interesting digression, I think, is incidentally that the production of the means of communication, of, of the physical conditions of circulation, is put into the category of the production of fixed capital. Interesting. So we're going to come up a lot with fixed capital, but this is, and hence, does not constitute a special case. That the rules of fixed capital formation are going to be applied, but in, in, in a certain way. Meanwhile, and incidentally, there opened us for the prospect, which cannot be sharply defined yet at this point, of a specific relation of capital to the communal general conditions of social production as distinct from the conditions of particular capital and its particular production process. So Marx has opened up here, as I suggested at the beginning, the whole question of infrastructural investments and, that, and, and how they're organized. And, and this is something that he clearly sees needs to be paid attention to, but it's you know, down the line. But he then comes back after the digression, bottom of 533. Circulation proceeds in space and time. This is kind of the thing I love, you know, as my geography hat coming on. Economically considered, the spatial condition, the bringing of the product to the market, belongs to the production process itself. The product is really finished only when it is on the market. This is the 
proposition he'd been earlier making, now he's uh, asserting it more, more foundationally. The movement through which it gets there belongs still with the cost of making it. It does not form a necessary moment of circulation regarded as a particular value process. But this spatial moment is important insofar as the expansion of the market and the exchangeability of the product are connected with it. The reduction of the costs of the real circulation belongs to the development of the forces of production by capital, the reduction of the costs of its realization. The reduction of the costs of this real circulation, then, is something we really have to look at. This locational moment, he then says, middle of 534, the bringing of the product to market, which is a necessary condition of its circulation, except when the point of production is itself a market, could more precisely be regarded as a transformation of the product into a commodity. Only on the market is it a commodity. That is, it's not a commodity until it gets on the market, and getting it to market is part of its value. The abbreviation, uh, he says, of this movement, of this moment, that is, of bringing it to market, is likewise developed a productive force. However, this is time still conceived only as an external condition for the transition from the state of money into that of commodity. So it is a time taken which is important here. And this belongs to the cost of production. Quite different, he said, is the time which generally passes before the commodity makes its transition into money, or the time during which it remains a commodity that is, on the shelf of the retailers or something, only a potential but not real value. This is pure loss. It is clear, he says, from everything said above, that circulation appears as an essential process of capital. The production process cannot be begun anew before the transformation of the commodity into money. The constant continuity of this process the unobstructed and fluid transition of value from one form into the other, or from one phase of the process into the next, appears as a fundamental condition for production based on capital to a much greater degree than for all earlier forms of production. So, how the circulation process proceeds, how transport and communication work, how change of location is set up, this is all integrated into here. He then kind of says, look, there, there are problems here, and there are various ways in which capital is invented to deal with these problems. And he introduces on 535 the suspension of the chance element of all of this movement by capital itself, and that suspension is going to be the credit system. Now, we're way over our heads in the credit system when in here Marx introduces it. Uh, but he introduces it and said that this is one of the ways in which uh, credit is going to, going to have a very important role uh, in uh, dealing with uh, the turnover time of capital and the different turnover times of capital. Uh, but he then kind of says, well, you know, the credit system and uh, certainly usury has been around for a very long time uh, and then kind of ends up by saying usury is itself a form of credit in its bourgeoisified form 
the form adapted to capital in its pre-bourgeois form it is rather the expression of lack of credit in its capitalist form it's, a, it's going to be about surpluses of credit um, but what he's suggesting here is that credit is not going to be parasitic that credit is going to play a very important role in, in this whole kind of question of relation to the marketing uh, of capital. Um, so he summarizes uh, on 536. Capital, he says, is now positive as not merely sustaining itself formally, but as realizing itself as value, as value relating to itself, as value in every one of the moments of its metamorphosis in which it appears at one time as money, at another time as commodity, then again as exchange value, then again as use value. The passage from one moment to the other appears as a particular process, but each of these processes is the transition to the other. Capital is thus posited as value in process, which is capital in every moment. So value in process. That's what's going on here, and that's what he's summarizing here, back in this whole kind of uh, uh, diagram. Uh, we're going from the money and its value in process. So capital is, is, is what circulates, and it's the circulation process that's significant. It's not just capital as a thing. It is capital is now being defined as something that is circulating, through these different moments with production, of course, being a critical moment, but also realization being a critical moment. Now, this poses uh, a very interesting kind of problem, which he addresses on 538-39. And we've already mentioned this, and we're going to go, go, go back to it, uh, over it again. He says, First off, on 538, uh, that capital travel, inasmuch as the circuits which capital travels in order to go from one of these forms into the other, constitute sections of circulation. And these sections are traveled in specific amounts of time, okay? The time does it take to get to market. Even spatial distance reduces itself to time. This is what annihilation of space by time really refers to, which is the way distance is reduces is reduced to time. The important thing, for example, is not the market's distance in space, but the speed, the amount of time with which it can be reached. By that much, the velocity of circulation, the time in which it is accomplished, is a determinant of how many products can be produced in a given period of time, how often capital can be realized in a given period of time, how often it can reproduce and multiply its value. Thus, a moment enter is into value determination, which indeed does not come out of the direct relation of labor to capital. Now, up until now, value has always been talked about as a direct relation of labor to capital. Labor cannot come from anywhere else. But here he says, there is a moment of value determination which does not come out of the direct relation of labor to capital. And that moment is the frequency with which the same capital can repeat the production process, creation of new value, in a given period of time, 
is evidently a condition not posited directly by the production process itself. Thus, while circulation does not itself produce a moment of value determination, that lies exclusively in labor, its speed does determine the speed with which the production process is repeated. Values are created. Thus, if not values, at least to a certain extent, the mass of values. In other, in other words, if you have a certain amount of capital and it takes one year to go right the way through this process until it can get back into producing whatever it is you were producing, if it takes one year to do that, then the amount of value produced in the year is just that which is produced in one circulation time. What happens if you speed it all up and you can do it four times in a year? Well, in that case, the relationship between capital and labor remains constant in the production process, but you do it four times in a year. That is, you produce four times the amount of value, which you produced when you could only do it in one year. And if you can do it 20 times in a year, you can do it even more. So Marx is kind of saying, if you can speed up, then you can produce an increasing mass of value. And that speed up is not only about how fast you can go through production, it's how fast you can realize the value, how fast you can get it to market, how fast you can transform it back into money capital and get it back into the production process. So the speed of circulation plays a very important role in accelerating the mass of values. Now, how much of the history of capital has been about speed up? And how much has that speed up produced an increasing mass of values? One of the arguments that I'm often making is that the mass of values now is accelerating, and in part is accelerating because of this speed up. This is a very, very important proposition Marx is making here. And to the degree that actually speed up is one of the crucial features in the history of capitalism, we have to study the history of speed up, the, the history of turnover times, because that is where a, a, a lot of extra value is coming from and, and the total value is, is, is expanding uh, through, through this process. Now, if that is the case, uh, then clearly technology is going to be very much directed towards accelerating turnover times, accomplishing speed up. Productive forces are not only going to be directed towards the, the technology of production, they're going to be very much directed towards this. When he, when he kind of says, uh, the important thing is not the market's distance in space, but the speed, the amount of time with which it can be reached, the velocity of circulation, the time in which is accomplished. This is a determinant of how many products can be produced in a given period of time. Thus, a moment enters into value determination, which does not come directly out of labor capital relation, but which is attached to this market process. So he says, thus, in addition to the labor time realized in production, the circulation time of capital enters in as a moment of value creation of productive labor time itself. While labor time appears as value-positing activity, this circulation time of capital appears as the time of devaluation. That is, one of the things you're going to try and do is to uh, mop up all of those periods when capital is not doing anything. In other words, where if capital 
is defined as value in motion. Any stoppage in the motion is a loss of capital. And that therefore, one of the things you want to do is to develop technologies which are going to actually stop that devaluation and, and get you through faster and faster. Uh, so he, he, he pushes this, that if the circulation time of capital were equal to zero, if the various stages of its transformations proceeded as rapidly in reality as in the mind, then that would likewise be the maximum of the factor by which the production process could be repeated. So the tendency to try to reduce circulation time is enormous. And he says on 539, circulation time is therefore not a positive value-creating element, but if either surplus labor time or necessary labor time, uh, or if production could proceed altogether without labor, then neither value nor capital nor value creation would exist. Circulation time therefore determines value only insofar as it appears as a natural barrier to the realization of labor time. It is therefore, in fact, a deduction from surplus labor time and increase of necessary labor time. Now, what's, what, 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 what's happening here is that there is this barrier uh, of, of circulation time in general, and you're trying to reduce that barrier. And the more you reduce that barrier, the more you move into a society which is based on instantaneity, which is a very difficult society to imagine. And if it's totally instantaneous, then, of course, uh, there's no point of value, there's no point of labor or anything. It's, you know. But there is, if you like, a, a tendency within capital to move towards instantaneity, uh, which then leads Marx to say this. Circulation time, he says on bottom of 539, thus appears as a barrier to the productivity of labor, an increase in necessary labor time, a decrease in surplus labor time, a decrease in surplus value, and an obstruction, a barrier to the self-realization process of capital. Thus, while capital must on the one side strive to tear down every spatial barrier to intercourse, that is, overcoming space through time, i.e. to exchange, and to conquer the whole earth for its market, it strives on the other side to annihilate this space with time. It's not by time this time, it's with time. To annihilate this space with time. To reduce to a minimum the time spent in motion from one place to another. The more developed the capital, therefore, the more extensive the market over which it circulates, which forms the spatial orbit of its circulation. The more does it strive simultaneously for an even greater extension of the market and for greater annihilation of space by time, through time. If labor time is regarded not as the working day of the individual worker, but as the indefinite working day of an indefinite number of workers, then all relations of population come in here. The basic doctrines of population are therefore just as much contained in this first chapter on capital as those on profit, price, credit, etc. There appears here the universalizing tendency of capital, the abolition of spatial barriers, the, re the reduction of, of the frictions of distance, and the substitution of spatial relations by temporal uh, relations. This 
he says, is, is the universalizing tendency of capital. This is what capital always does and has been doing from its very inception. And it's been doing it today. And we're witnessing some of the disadvantages of having done it today by the speed with which something like uh, uh, the coronavirus can, can, can move around the world. I mean, the, this is the, the, the negative side of what Marx is talking about here is uh, uh, right with us right now. As he says, although limited by its very nature, uh, capital uh, strives towards the universal development of the forces of production and thus becomes the presupposition of a new mode of production, which is founded not on the development of the forces of production for the purposes of reproducing or at most expanding a given condition, but where the free, unobstructed, progressive and universal development of the forces of production is itself the presupposition of society and hence of its reproduction. Where advanced beyond the point of departure is the only presupposition. The tendency which capital possesses, but which at the same time, since capital is a limited form of production, contradicts it and hence drives it towards dissolution, distinguishes capital from all earlier modes of production and at the same time contains this element that capital is positive as a mere point of transition. All previous forms of society, or it is the same of the forces of social production, founded on the development of wealth. Those thinkers of antiquity who was possessed of consciousness therefore directly denounced wealth as a dissolution of the community. And then he goes into feudal life and dissolution of uh, uh, different forms of uh, society and how the development of science and under capital is also playing a very crucial role. And we're going to come back to that in a later section. Uh, in its moment, as he said, the development of science alone, i.e. the most solid form of wealth, both its product and its producer, was sufficient to dissolve these earlier communities. But the development of science, this ideal and at the same time practical wealth, is only one aspect, one form in which the development of human productive forces, i.e. of wealth, appears. Considered ideally, that is mentally, the dissolution of a given form of consciousness sufficed to kill a whole epoch. Interesting. The dissolution of a given form of consciousness sufficed to kill a whole epoch. Let's reverse that. That would mean if we wanted to kill capitalism, we would have to engage in the dissolution of its given form of consciousness. And that therefore the attack upon the consciousness that attaches to capital circulation and derives from capital circulation and derives from exchange, that that consciousness is going to be one of the big barriers to the transition to socialism. Now, he's, he's saying considered ideally. Of course, idealists would say, well, if we can change everybody's mind, then everything will change. No, that's not what Marx is saying. Marx is saying, however, that, that without the dissolution of the capitalist form of consciousness, the market form of consciousness, without a dissolution of that, we will never get to socialism. But the big question is, that's an idealistic position, and we know perfectly well but simply going around and arguing with everybody that should stop thinking like a capitalist and should think like a socialist ain't going to work. 
it's not going to work. Because actually daily life and material circumstances are such as to produce and reinforce and reconstitute a capitalist consciousness. In other words, our way of life is about that consciousness and producing that consciousness. So we cannot change that consciousness without changing the way of life. And we can't change the way of life without changing our consciousness. This is Marx's dialectic at work. But I love this phrase, that a given form of consciousness sufficed to kill a whole epoch. And it was capitalist consciousness that destroyed what feudalism was about. But it was also capitalist practices which allowed that consciousness to, um, to function and produce that consciousness. And one of those forms of consciousness which dissolved the preceding order was science. Now, it's interesting that science is now under attack for all kinds of reasons, most of them bad, as we understand. But the fact that there's a question mark over the consciousness that derives from certain kinds of scientific understanding, and in particular, I would argue, the consciousness that derives from the kind of understanding that economists offer us is part, is, is part and parcel of our problem. In other words, we have to dissolve the scientific knowledge of the economists in exactly the same way the economists dissolved the ways of thinking of late feudalism. And this, it seems to me, is, 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 is what Marx is putting uh, uh, on, on the agenda. So this is uh, what Marx is, is beginning to, to look at and looks at it in more and more, more detail and then starts to sort of have some general discussions about circulation times, uh, about uh, uh, the, the, the kind of question of transport communication is constantly coming back in, the question of the uh, notion of space and time, all these kinds of issues are coming back in. Um, and so on 542, uh, Marx kind of say that we should start to, to look at, at, at the, the, the basis of the possibility of universal development of the individual and the real development of individuals on the basis as a constant suspension of the barriers which exist uh, through, uh, uh, through circulation. Um, and we have to recognize that these barriers, he said, are not sacred limits. And, 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 and he puts it this way, not an ideal or imagined universality of the individual, but the universality of his real and ideal relations. Hence also the grasping of his own history as a process. I've made this argument before that Marx is terribly committed to the idea uh, that we should understand our life as a process. Uh, that we are not things, we are, uh, you know, we live a process and that process is, is uh, from, it's from that that we derive our understandings and our consciousness and, and all the rest of it. And therefore, to understand the nature of the process is in some part to understand uh, where we get our ideas from and, and to some degree who we are. Uh, and he then goes on to say, we have to understand our own history as a process and recognize nature, equally present as a practical power, as, as his real body, that is, uh, 
we are not separated from nature, we are integral to nature and that therefore uh, the, the, the dialectic of, uh, of our positionality uh, in, in, relation, in relation to nature is important. Um, for this, he says, uh, however, necessary above all, that the full development of the forces of production has become the condition of production. And therefore, conditions of production are posited as a limit to the development of the productive forces. If we now return, he says, to the circulation time of capital, then its abbreviation, except for development of the means of communication and transport required, in part, is in part the creation of a continuous and hence an ever more extensive market, and in part the development of economic relations, development of forms of capital by means of which it artificially abbreviates the circulation time. It may be further remarked that since capital alone possesses the conditions of the production of capital and satisfies and strives to realize them, it is a general tendency of capital at all points, which are presuppositions of circulation, which form its productive centers, to assimilate them, uh, to assimilate these points into itself, i.e. to transform them into capitalizing production or production of capital. Um, and he's talking here uh, about production based on capital, coming out of circulation, dominating production, and then flowing back into the circulation process to reconfigure circulation. Uh, so, in, in a sense, the way I, I look at this is that this is really talking about the production uh, of globalization. It's talking about the production uh, of uh, more and more extended markets. And as you have more and more extended markets, so uh, this feeds back in terms of, of new, new capacities of production new modes of production, new forms of production. So that the system, for me anyway, is a very, is a very geographical kind of system. Uh, and we're seeing the conquest of space and the, con the circulation of capital in space and time, um, with space and time themselves being reconfigured according to uh, the measurements of cost and the measurement of temporality and so on. So uh, this is, uh, if you like, uh, the, the, much of the argument that is uh, taking place uh, here. Uh, coming back, however, to one very important issue. It follows, he says on 544, from the relation of circulation time to the production process, that the sum of values produced, or the total realization of capital in a given epoch, is determined not simply by the the new value which it creates in the production process, or by the surplus time realized in the production process, but rather by this surplus time, surplus value, multiplied by the number which expresses how often the production process of capital can be repeated within a given period of time. The number which expresses this frequency of, of repetition may be regarded as the coefficient of the production process or of the surplus value created through it. So the number of times and the speed up then is expressed as a coefficient of value production. And the faster the speed up, how that coefficient then, uh, then, then, then change. Um, 
so this is this is this explains a, a lot about uh, how the productive forces of capital get oriented towards the reduction of circulation time, uh, how they are taken up with uh, uh, overcoming these uh, blank uh, spaces where nothing is happening, uh, reducing what he later on will call the fallow time or uh, devaluation time. Uh, so, and, and, and reducing all, all, all these barriers to the, the continuity of the production process. So you, you've got these propositions now saying capital is on, are constantly working towards the maintenance of its continuity and continuity of its uh, production. And that continuity uh, is something that can only be assured by, by a smooth transition from one uh, form, such as money, into commodity, into production, into commodity, the smoothness of all of that, and the time it takes to do all of that, and the temporalities have to be brought together uh, and the conflicting temporalities and most conflicting temporalities, he, he says, eventually will be uh, uh, resolved to some degree uh, by a creative role of the credit system, which will smooth out uh, many of these differentiations. So that the, ma the maintenance of the continuity of the production process um, becomes a necessity, and that continuity uh, and the speed up of that continuity also becomes a necessity within the history of, 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 of capital. And one of the things this does is to overcome the dead time of capital. Uh, he, he talks on 548 about uh, uh, instead of lying fallow, the surplus value can be animated and the surplus value can be generated. Um, and, and that uh, a lot of what we're doing is to try to eliminate the porosity uh, that exists within the capital of circulation and so on. So he mentioned some of this together on 548. Uh, uh, so that, the, uh, and again at the top, he talks about uh, the problem of uh, capital lying fallow and how we have to find ways to recuperate that. And the bottom, uh, he talks about the continuity of the production process. Uh, production presupposes that circulation time has been suspended and that the tendency is therefore uh, to, to uh, try to reduce it, to uh, reduce um, the phases of circulation, including production, to as close to zero. And he, he uses an interesting metaphor at the bottom where he kind of says, uh, you know, capital must spend some time as a cocoon before it can take off as a butterfly. And, uh, have, and when I talk about uh, the different uh, geographical mobilities of uh, capital, I would say, you know, production capital is, uh, in, is the cocoon, uh, which is pretty stationary. Commodity capital is like the caterpillar. It kind of crawls around and moves around. Uh, when capital becomes the money form, it becomes the butterfly form. So I think this is a nice metaphor to sort of talk about the different mobilities of of capital, but also to talk about how those different forms of capital can handle spatiotemporality. The butterfly form can flit around the world, so money capital can flit around the world pretty fast, light on something for a while, withdraw from it. So uh, the, the butterfly form of capital, which uh, is one which is very uh, much evident in, in, in contemporary capitalism, uh, contrasts with the sort of uh, 
slower movement of the commodity form, which contrasts with the very, very difficult to move part, which is the uh, productive part, the productive moment of uh, capital. So when you go through these different moments, you find different ways in which space and time uh, get uh, set up. So this is, in effect, what what what, what we're dealing with uh, uh, in this week's uh, thing. Now, uh, what then follows uh, are, are some uh, interesting uh, things, and I'm, which I'm not going to go through because, as you know, Marx uh, gets a lot of his ideas out of critical investigation and interrogation of classical political economy. Uh, what what follows on 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 all of this is a detailed discussion of Ricardo and why Ricardo got certain things right and certain things wrong. Uh, there's discussion of Malthus. There's discussion of uh, Carey. There's a discussion of uh, uh, Chabouliers and uh, Sismondi. So there are discussions of uh, all of these different characters uh, at uh, different times, and um, uh, and and I think it's it's worthwhile reading and studying. But uh, what what you get out of it. Uh, Will will de- you know deepen your appreciation of how Marx interrogated classical political economy and built a lot of his theory uh, out of that interrogation. There is one issue that does crop up here, which has not been uh, discussed uh, very much, and and I think that uh, I, I would like to to mention this. And that is on page 552, Marx mentions the whole kind of question of competition. Now, competition is something which is a a very important issue, but but Marx tends not to handle it very thoroughly or very well. So I think it's important to look at those little flashes where he brings up question of competition, and he does so on 5.52. Competition generally, he says, this essential locomotive force of the bourgeois economy. But then he adds, competition does not establish its laws, but is rather their executor. Unlimited competition is therefore not the presupposition for the truth of the economic laws but rather the consequence, the form of appearance in which their necessity realizes itself. As a bit further down the line, he says, competition, therefore, does not explain these laws. Rather, it lets them be seen, but does not produce them. So competition comes back in Marx's theory all of the time as the enforcer of the laws of motion of capital but it does not explain the laws of motion of capital. They have to be, those laws of motion of capital have to be explained a different way. We've seen some of that at work already in this whole kind of question of space, here, you know, temporality and the, the, the building of infrastructures and so on. Competition is not going to explain why all of that happens. Uh, that is going to be explained by something else. But if we want to explain how those laws get enforced and how infrastructures get actually built, uh, so on, then competition comes into the story. And, you know, and, and therefore it's uh, the enforcer, which raises an interesting question, which I think to some degree Marx begs in, in, in much of his work, which is if the enforcer goes to sleep, what happens to the laws? 
I mean, the laws can't, I mean, the laws, may, I mean, the, 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 there are constitutions which mandate all kinds of things, but if nobody's enforcing the, the, the constitutional mandates, uh, the constitution is a dead letter. So you need an enforcement mechanism. The enforcement mechanism is competition, one of them is competition. It's an important enforcement mechanism. But if there is no competition and there's monopoly power or competition uh, gets uh, restructured in some way, uh, then the laws of motion are not going to work very well. And in fact, you may end up with rather different laws of motion. Um, for example, competition over the equalization of the rate of profit. This competition uh, was very much blunted during the Bretton Woods era because each nation state was in a sense an entity working with its own fiscal policy. And to the degree work with its own fiscal policies, uh, competition was limited to competition within the United States or within Britain or within France and competition between the United States and France and Germany and, 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 and Korea and China and the rest of it was muted. We've moved from a situation where there's been, there was very little competition internationally uh, in the 1960s to a situation where 1980s, 1990s, international competition has become very powerful and very strong. So this is uh, something which uh, uh, we need to recognize, and Marx uh, uh, brings it back in again. It's obviously on his mind uh, on 559. Well, uh, he says here, before we go further, this is about toward, toward, oh, um, okay, right to the bottom he makes his argument. And this means, in other words, nothing other than that the laws of capital are completely realized only within unlimited competition and industrial production. Now, this is a very important thing about Marx's theory. Marx is working towards a theory of what happens under conditions of unlimited competition and industrial production. What happens when you don't have unlimited competition, but you've got oligopoly or monopoly or whatever, and what happens when you're not simply dealing with industrial production, you're dealing with, uh, uh, say, uh, real estate development or something of that kind. Then uh, goes on to say, capital develops adequately on the latter productive basis and in the former relation of production, i.e. its imminent laws enter completely into reality. Since this is so, it would have to be shown that this unlimited competition and industrial production are conditions of the realization of capital, conditions which it must itself, little by little, produce, instead of the hypothesis appearing here as merely that of the theoretician. And Marx is kind of saying here, okay, I've been working on a theory uh, which is in effect based on unlimited competition and industrial production. To what degree are we living in a world of unlimited competition and industrial production? And I think the answer is that at certain historical periods have been more competitive than others. At other points, we've been in a system of monopoly uh, capitalism. Are we now back in the system of monopoly capitalism? I think the argument is very strong that we are no longer as much uh, constrained by uh, unlimited competition. And we're certainly 
having to look at other forms of circulation of capital uh, than that which is involved in Marx's descriptions here, which is that of industrial capital. And I think we need to, to take that to, into account and, and, and I think be grateful to Marx for pointing this out. Uh, that the, the, the presupposition that he is basing the, all this on is uh, unlimited competition and the circulation of industrial capital. Now, I have no objection to him developing everything that goes on in that world uh, into a kind of a theoretical understanding, and I think certain critical understandings come out of that. But we have to recognize that that is a theoretical position. It's an idealist uh, position, and we have to ask the question, is it, is it exactly uh, the same as that which we will want to, uh, to, to, to accept? So the rest of the, the, this uh, uh, section uh, is really about uh, um, Marx's discussion with all of the uh, classical political economists. And, and like I say to you, it's worthwhile uh, work, working through this uh, if you uh, can uh, and, and, and care about it, I'm, I'm not going to do it uh, because you will find a great deal of uh, that's uh, of, uh, uh, of, of material here that is that is in, that is interesting. So let me see how much you know, uh, time you got. Okay, we've got a, a little bit more more time. Um, now, Marx. Uh, towards the end of the sections that I gave you, right the way through to uh, uh, the end of this, uh, to 594, uh, I'm actually going to skip most of this, apart from a couple of, uh, of remarks, and then I'll go back uh, to look at some, some other things. Uh, on 585, Marx uh, comes back uh, to something which I think is uh, an echo of uh, the argument uh, much earlier. And, and, and that is this, that he's going to look at the productive powers which uh, actually derive from labor. And he's going to sort of, because... Uh, they're alienated productive powers, and then there's an alienation involved. They get transferred and transformed into something different. Uh, and here he comes back to talk about this. Um, like all productive powers of labor, i.e. those which determine the degree of its intensity and hence its extensive realization, the association of the workers, the cooperation and division of labor as fundamental conditions of the productivity of labor, that that the association appears as the productive power of capital. The collective power of labor, its character as social labor, is therefore the collective power of capital. Likewise, science. Likewise, the division of labor. As it appears as division of the occupations and of exchange corresponding to them. All social powers of production are productive powers of capital. And it appears as itself their subject. Now, this is, this is coming back again and again to this kind of question of alienation, that labor actually creates capital through the production of surplus value. It cannot create, it cannot get access to its 
necessary labor to its own forms of sustenance, it cannot get access to that uh, without actually producing surplus value for the capitalist. That is, a condition of labor's existing is that it produce surplus value, which is the production of capital. Capital, at the same time, uses its power of domination uh, over labor uh, to reorganize the production process, do all of these things like productive forces, transforming productive forces and the like, and to do uh, and create uh, all sorts of forms of association of the laborer, uh, and to do all of these things, and then it looks around and says, I built this world. This world is my construction. The laborers have no part of it. Uh, and they have been alienated. Uh, and uh, that alienated labor at, 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 at the base of the system is not able uh, to actually exert any kind of power over this system. And, and again, these are the sorts of metaphors which are uh, around. Um, since I'm on lockdown, I, um, I've been uh, sort of uh, binging a bit on Netflix and uh, actually uh, a very interesting metaphor for all of this is, is Westworld. I mean, Westworld is the creation of a, of a, of a fantasy land uh, by, by human beings who create uh, human beings or fake human beings who can be shot and killed and then rebuilt and sent back out again uh, around certain kind of narratives and so on, which are supplied by, by the designers of, uh, of, this, uh, of this part. But, of course, the story rests on the fact that the appearance is that all of the power lies... Uh, with the human beings who've designed the system and they therefore assert their powers all of the time. Meanwhile, uh, it appears that the, the hosts of the, uh, who, of the people who kind of uh, suffer uh, being, being raped and killed and, you know, dreadful things happening to them, they, they, they have no power whatsoever. Uh, and, of course, the whole story of Westworld is how certain elements within that powerless world start to assert power and start to turn the tables and, and, and uh, so it get, gets an inversion. So what Marx is doing here is to just sort of say that these productive powers that appear to belong to capital actually don't belong to capital, they are powers of labor. And if labor becomes conscious, conscious of its powers, it can start actually then to utilize those powers in, in, in radically different ways. Um, and this is, a, I think, a very important kind of a, a mode of thinking, which, uh, which uh, uh, I think it's worthwhile uh, looking at. Um, and, and Marx starts to sort of uh, uh, talk about the being of the workers and, and how the being uh, and the being of, uh, of, of capital and, and what that contest is about. And remember, they are locked in each other's arms in this mortal combat. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and we look at some of the lopsidedness in the relation between the two. Uh, as Marx kind of says on bottom of 585, there cannot be one capitalist for every worker but rather there has to be a certain quantity of workers per capitalist. 
not like one or two journeymen per master. Productive capital, or the mode of production corresponding to capital, can be present in only two forms, manufacture and large-scale industry. In the former, the division of labor is predominant. In the second, the combination of labor powers with a regular mode of work and the employment of scientific power, where the combination and, so to speak, the communal spirit of labor is transferred to the machine. In the first situation, the mass of accumulated workers must be large in relation to the amount of capital. In the second, the fixed capital must be large in relationship to the number of many cooperating workers. But the concentration of many and their distribution among the machinery are so many cogs. Why it is so different in agriculture does not, being, does not belong here. Is, however, already presupposed. So the, the existence of, of concentration and, and what happens in the manufacturing system of production, which is the subject of uh, one of the chapters in Capital, which is then followed by the, the factory system, which is you know, Capital's preferred mode of opera, uh, operation. Um, and this leads him to say, at the bottom of 587, the principle of developed capital is precisely to make special skills superfluous and to make manual work, directly physical labor, generally superfluous, both as skill and as muscular exertion. To transfer skill, rather, into the dead forces of, of nature, that is, into the machine. And this machine technology is going to be a very important item uh, in what follows. But then, just jumping, an interesting observation on page 590, which is the main point right towards the end of this whole section that we've been reading, where Marx kind of makes the following comment. But only capital has subjugated historical progress to the service of wealth. Now, remember, Back on page 488, when Marx talked about wealth and how the wealth is hollowed out and has no meaning, and that the pursuit of wealth has no meaning. And I would want to draw your attention again to something which, which Marx does mention in here and which um, I didn't talk about, but which is, is, is important, which is back on uh, page 541. Well, Marx says this, um, when he's talking about the wilting after flowering and as consequence of the flowering, this is the point at which it is itself worked out, developed into the form in which it is compatible with the highest development of the forces of production, hence also the richest development of the individuals. Now, Marx Throughout, and I, 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 I'm always coming back to this because it's so, you know, completely misunderstood, and probably will never be properly understood by, uh, by, by the right wing anyway. Is that Marx is always in favour of the richest development of the individuals, and that the problem right now is that historical progress has been subjugated to the service of wealth. And there's a big difference between saying we want a society which is wealthy and where wealth is everywhere in evidence, which is the kind of society we've built, 
which is radically different in Marx's view from that society in which there is the possibility for the richest development of the individuals. The richest development of the individuals cannot, cannot arise in a society where the imprisonment in wage labor, the existence of debt peonage, um, you know, the general alienation uh, of uh, whole segments of the population from, from both the experience of work and daily life and cultural forms and politics. We, we can't imagine a society where that world uh, is the end point of what the wealth is about. I mean, in effect, we've created a world in the pursuit of wealth where some people are astonishingly wealthy. And, but those people are astonishingly wealthy because, as Marx kind of says in that passage, in those passages, the poverty of the laborer becomes exceedingly gross. So the poverty of, 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 of the worker is what, what, what allows for the production of that wealth. And if that is the case, then this does not allow for the full development of the individuals and the workers in particular. Certain individuals may say, oh, well, it's great for me, but it's not great for everyone. And I think what Marx is posing here is this, is this grand contradiction between a, 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 a bourgeois mode of production, which in itself is about the development of the productive forces for all the reasons we're talking about. The construction of a universalism, which is potentially progressive, and potentially uh, not, only, not only progressive, but, but, but which covers uh, basic needs in, in, in the minimum of time, all of those things can go on, which would liberate the, all individuals to explore their own potentialities with any way they liked. And again, here too, we come back to this uh, issue of, of space and time that the kind of the temporality of all of this and, and the speed up that's involved in all of this is not necessarily beneficial to the exploration of all possibilities. In fact, the speed up where we're looking for faster and faster modes of consumption have led us into this contemporary world of the production of needs which are about instantaneous gratifications and experiential forms of consumerism which don't last. And, one of, and, and what we're seeing right now, thanks to the virus, is the exposition of what happens to a society where capital accumulation is about the acceleration of experiential forms of consumerism, which involve, for example, tourism and all the trouble, all of those sectors which are made superbly in trouble. The only form of society which is actually doing quite well right now would, would, of course, be the Netflix society because to the degree we're all locked down, I'm at least watching more Netflix because I have nothing better to do apart from reading stuff and, and, and working on stuff. But for, for, for entertainment, uh, I have uh, very little I can do apart from uh, watching, watching Netflix series. So uh, welcome to Netflix in the uh, age of, uh, 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 of COVID-19. So... Here's, here's, here's what, what, where it seems to me that Marx has been headed. But all of this stuff on space and time, 
to me, as you can imagine, been absolutely crucial. I could never have written many of the things I've written had it not been for these passages about space and time, which Marx is investigating here. And it's very clear exposition as to why it is that capital must conquer both space and time in a certain kind of way and reconfigure spatio-temporalities in certain ways, engage in processes of what I call time-space compression, and we can elaborate upon many of these ideas and elaborate also on how infrastructures get built, how the, the importance of the infrastructures and, 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 and what, they, and what, what, what these infrastructures might be about, who might build them, how they might get built, how they might get priced, how they might be handled in, in terms of economic theory. And Marx telling us basically we should handle them uh, as if they are part of the world of fixed capital. And that world of fixed capital is very soon going to be part and parcel very much of what it is we have to say. Well, I'm going to stop here. Um, I guess we're getting a little closer uh, to, to, to the end of the time. Um, I'm not sure how I can do uh, uh, questions. <laughs> and if any questions can get through, I'm not sure. Um, I don't know. Let me, let me see if anybody can uh, get in <laughs> and ask questions. For a few seconds, she can come back. Okay, I hear something. Hi, everybody. Um, so, Professor Harvey, we have a question. Uh, one of the questions is, I am very interested in this dialectic between capitalist consciousness and practice. As I understand it, it suggests that for transformation to happen, there needs to be some kind of hiccup in one or the other, or maybe both. Would you speak a bit to where the possibilities for change works in your reading of Marx? I, th I think his argument here, just, you know, I mean, there's a, the, the simplest argument is simply to, to say this, that uh, there is a certain consciousness uh, that arises out of acts of exchange and uh, the addiction to uh, money power uh, and that consciousness uh, arises out of uh, certain practices. Uh, I, have, I have money power and I can go into the market and I can do all kinds of things uh, with it. And uh, I can uh, purchase privileges and so on. And, and if that can be a, a way in which I can purchase my um, privileges, uh, then I'm going to want for the continuation of this society which produces a situation in which I can command money power, which gives me command over services, which gives me command over large segments of uh, social and uh, even political life. Uh, so uh, it's out of those practices that certain consciousness arises. Now, there can be critique of those practices. Uh, and uh, I think that, you know, even many of many capitalists will, will recognize that there's something empty and hollow about the perpetual pursuit of, 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 uh, of wealth, as opposed to the pursuit of a kind of social order where all individuals have the possibility of exploring their own possibilities and creative uh, instincts in whatever ways they, they want. So, I think what Marx is trying to say to us is that there is a, there is a moment of consciousness uh, which is in itself free to, to think and, 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 and be concerned, and that's what a lot of literature 
of course, is about, and a lot of art is about, which is, which is you know, uh, sort of exploring uh, alternatives. But those alternatives always come up against the hard realities of how we're going to change daily life, where I go into a supermarket and I'm, I'm going to be confronted with the products of alienated labor, uh, and uh, I'm going to have to hold in my hand uh, money power, which is which is alienated uh, 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 labor as well, and I'm going to use those things in an alienated way. So how am I going to get out of uh, out of the practice of that? So I think what Marx's position is that you you have to you, you have to work on all fronts. That the, 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 there is a moment where he kind of says that. Uh, uh, ideas can be a material force in historical change, uh, and they, they can be, but on their own, they will not go very far without radical transformations in practices. And I think you know, a lot of people in political movements re recognize that very well. Uh, a lot of people in the environmental movement will say, for example, uh, look, it's all very well, uh, you know, you advocating for the Green New Deal, but all the time you continue to drive that gas-guzzling SUV around and, and put all those miles on, and all the time you hop into planes and, 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 and all the rest of it, which, by the way, we can't do right now, which is something that's very beneficial for the environment. And by the way, uh, in Wuhan, I think air quality has re improved remarkably as a result of this. Uh, the changing behaviors in, in, which have been mandated by uh, the, the arrival of this uh, this virus. So, uh, you know, it, it, it is difficult to, 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 to envisage some sort of dramatic revolutionary change in practices without there being a change of consciousness. And it's similarly impossible to think about changes in consciousness which don't involve uh, serious changes in the nature of our actual daily practices. So that is... The, the way in which I think Marx sets it up. But there are other other issues as well because our daily practices are also embedded in institutional arrangements. Uh, they're also embedded in certain technological configurations uh, which to some degree uh, play a role in, in, in fixing our social relations and the nature of our social relations. So as I see it, uh, my own view would be if I take all of Marx's thinking, I would say you need changes in technology changes in the relation to nature, changes in institutions, changes in consciousness, changes in, 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 in uh, uh, production practices, uh, changes in, uh, in, 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 in um, forms. So, so, so we, need, we need to change on many, many different fronts. And people look at you and say, well, that's, that's pretty impossible. But actually, when I think about it, I think, well, no, it's not so impossible because I remember a time in 1970 when we thought about the world in a rather different way than we think about it now. How do we think about it now? Well, we've had 40-odd years, 50-odd years almost, of, uh, of neoliberal ethic. And we now think of the world in rather neoliberal terms, and we didn't think of the world in those neoliberal terms in 1970s. We thought about them in different ways. So we've changed our, our consciousness and our mode of thought uh, we're much more into these days personal responsibility, personal entrepreneurialism of the self, or those kinds of neoliberal uh, things, uh, which, which were not there in the late 1960s, 1970s. People were thinking in terms of class solidarities, they were thinking of political movements, the idea of communism was important, the idea of socialist future was important. 
And I remember in the 1970s actually really believing that revolution was around the corner. Well, it was around the corner. It's just that it was a neoliberal revolution, not the socialist revolution. So, so, but when you kind of say to yourself, well, how, how, how has the world changed uh, through this rise of neoliberalism? And I think there are some fantastic books about that. For instance, if you take uh, uh, the book of uh, Melinda Cooper on family values, a very, very interesting book, which is about how the family was construed uh, during the 40s period of the 1960s and 1970s, and how family has been reconfigured through 30 or 40 years of neoliberal policies and, polit and, and ideological manipulation and uh, all the rest of it. So in, in other words, if we look at uh, institutional arrangements and if we look at uh, the relation to nature and we look at all those things, it's been, a, you know, the whole neoliberal era was a real transformation. Uh, in some ways, it was a counter-revolutionary movement where all of these elements I'm talking about were, were, were shifting and changing uh, and, and brought us to the point now where it's hard, hard to think in any way that is not inflected by neoliberal thinking. I mean, we're all neoliberals now without knowing it. And, and, and to some degree, a critique of that is not about going back to the way we thought and felt in the 1970s, because that's not the point, but can we actually envisage some sort of transformation which was analogous to what, how neoliberalism arose out of uh, the kind of the Bretton Woods, Fordist kind of world, how, how that transformation occurred. Can we envisage a transformation of the neoliberal world into something very different. And it's going to require different behaviors, which is why I think there is an element in this, this virus shock where we're all having to change our behaviors. We're all having to think differently. Not necessarily in positive ways, I have to say. It won't necessarily be that way. But we're all having to do something different. Is this a moment when we can actually start to think about, okay, are there radical differences in behavior that need to be constructed? Can we construct them? If so, how shall they be constructed? So this is a, 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 a positionality moment where we can start to ask those questions. And I think that, uh, for me anyway, living in isolation and seclusion here, <laughs> I'm going to pretty much uh, try to uh, uh, think out some of those things. Thank you, Professor. Another question that we have is, um, in regards of transportation, can we think of a railroad as a factory whose commodity is transport? If so, would this extend to roads and even internet connection infrastructure? Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want to do it that way. I think that the way Marx does it is, is adequate, which is to say, we should, we should think of the railroad not, not as a factory, but as a particular mode of production. And Marx does allow, I mean, Marx uses the word mode of production in different, different settings. For instance, he'll talk about the mode of production of steel, which is a very distinctive mode of production. The mode of production in agriculture is different from the mode of production in, in steel, even though they're both embedded in the, quote, capitalist mode of production, which is the totality. So when Marx is using the narrow term mode of production, uh, it's about specific modes of production in different spheres of action and activity. And I think that I would therefore want to say, let's look at the distinctive mode of production of transport and communications, and let's look at uh, the particular kinds of features. 
uh, one of the features of the mode of production is that you're always dealing with what uh, Adam Smith called natural monopolies. Uh, if you build a railroad, it's very hard to imagine there should be 50 different railroads competing with each other, running between, say, uh, New York and Washington. Uh, you're therefore dealing with one railroad, and the big question is, well, if, if it's monopoly, how do you price uh, the railroad? Uh, same would apply to a toll roads. It's not as if uh, you have five different toll roads running choose which one, and they're going to compete with each other on pricing. So, so we, we've got a particular mode of production of transport and communications, where there are monopoly elements, where there are certain technologies, and there have some, been some crazy solutions, for example, like uh, Britain, they, they have a, uh, a separate uh, corporation that runs the track, and then different companies bid for spaces on the, on the track, so it's, it's an insane uh, system. Uh, and most people in Britain would want to go back to a single kind of monopoly uh, state uh, administered or state mandated uh, structure. So I think what, the way you would do it, and then also within it, you would also say well, how, what, what kind of social relations are there within this mode of production in the same way there are distinctive modes of, uh, of social relations in agriculture, which often involves migrant labor forces and uh, the seasonality strong seasonality which exists in certain uh, arenas of agricultural production which don't exist in other uh, areas so i think what we what the way i would do it is to say let's look at the distinctive mode of production of transport and communications uh, let's look at uh, how innovations are introduced and utilized how well, the revolutions in productive forces are are set up and uh, uh, within uh, within this sphere so i would just want it to be discussed as a distinctive mode of production, in the same way that Marx says agriculture is different from uh, steel and uh, steel is different from uh, the production of, uh, uh, say, uh, Netflix uh, uh, original. Thank you, Professor. I think that's about the time we have today. Um, could you let us know what to prepare for next week? Oh, yeah, next week is, um, oh my goodness, uh, we're, we're going to be into the thick of some fantastic uh, stuff next week. Uh, it's going to be 595 to uh, 668.